Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. Today is our final message of our current series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. And we'll wrap up our study on the Sermon on the Mount with a message called An Invitation to Eternity. So let's turn in our text to Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 29. Not long ago, I was sitting at a table in a restaurant sharing a meal with a man who led a ministry that preached the gospel to and cared for the needs of the poor of the earth. Since I had recently been to India, he told the story of some of the poor in that land. These were members of the lowest caste. Many of them would work in rock quarries with a hammer in hand, splitting rocks into gravel from the time of childhood until their weary adult bodies gave out and they died. Many of them were working for a lifetime to pay off a family debt, an amount of money that is the equivalent of about $300. They were paid so little. A lifetime of splitting rocks in a quarry was not considered enough to pay off such a small debt. I was staggered at the thought and marveled at human cruelty. You know, the conversation at that table that night carried on. The man who described this horrible scene went on to describe a conversation he had had with a young boy in one of those quarries. He asked the young boy what he would like to become. And the boy, without looking up, simply said, I've learned not to dream. You know, I've had some difficulty dealing with that scene. It, it haunts me. It haunts me because every child I've ever met has dreams. They want to be firefighters and farmers and mothers and prime ministers and pilots. The capacity to dream and, and to imagine what we would like to become and be and even change into is a part of a universal human experience. It takes a horrible, depraved abuse to drive that from the heart of a child. As Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, it is to this universal human experience that he now speaks. Everyone is building a life, he says. Everyone is fulfilling a dream. Yeah, yeah, I know. There are drug addicts and pleasure seekers who try to drive away the pain of unfulfilled dreams or to anesthetize the pain of their failure with some immediate gratification. But that's just the point. It takes just such a violent approach to drive the human will to dream away. It's a part of what it means to be in the image of God. It is a frightful tragedy when that dream has been driven away. But it is to this capacity to dream that Jesus speaks. You know, his is a dire warning that the fulfillment of some dreams, misplaced, ill-thought-through dreams, are as dire as the child who never dreams again. To use the words of Jesus, we are all building a house, structure. It is the project of a lifetime, the fulfillment of our dreams. But as we all know, certain buildings, like the pyramids of Egypt, last for many thousands of years, and some, like an igloo in Canada's north, is only meant to last for the winter season. It soon ends. So let's read the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and I'm reading from Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when we last left off, we heard Jesus warn that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He demands that his would-be followers would submit to his kingship, 
that they surrender their lives and their future into his loving hands. But now in the end of his sermon, he tells us why this is the only wise thing to do. In every single human life, a structure arises. It is the structure of our house, the choice we make, the things we live for, the goals and the dreams we pursue. And at the end of every life, there stands a kind of an edifice that reflects what we have built over the course of a lifetime. Jesus, in describing this process and why a surrender of our lives and our future into his hands is significant, describes the process of building a house in four phases. First is the foundation upon which we build. He's speaking here about the presuppositions that form the basis upon which we make all the decisions we make in life. Then second is the actual structure we build, the actual shape of a life. Then third, he speaks about the test which each house is subjected. He is speaking about something in specific, something we had not anticipated, something that will destroy everything upon which our lives have been built upon. And then finally, he speaks about the final outcome of each life. You remember that in the section preceding this passage, he is comparing human lives to trees that either go on to be fruitful or are cut down and thrown into the fire. So let's trace the two houses or the two lives as they are built and lived out. The first is the wise man. Jesus is referring here to his followers, the ones who surrender their lives into his loving hands. They have converted. They have entered through the narrow gate. They've renounced all their idols and for the sake of the kingdom of heaven would gladly forego all other things. Whether it's pride or lust or dealing with enemies or trying to figure out the meaning of money and how to use it from from prayer to anxiety over the future, they will trust their king, King Jesus, to direct the course of their lives. That's their foundation. And if that's you, congratulations. You have entrusted your life and your decisions and your willingness to repent and your ongoing confidence into the hands of Christ who loves you. Of course, you're not perfect. You are, after all, poor in spirit, counting your inner spiritual advantage to be desperately impoverished. You know you're a sinner, and you count every day upon the grace that comes from Christ. But you hunger and thirst after his kingdom, both in your life and in the world. This, says Jesus, is building your house on a rock. The rock is the foundation, and this foundation is solid and does not move. Again, it's important that we understand exactly what the rock is. Yeah, the rock is Jesus, but the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the rock is the life that Jesus has described, its values, its foundational principles in our lives. It's our submission and willingness to trust in him. Allow me to press that point. If you're married but believe you could do better than the, than the spouse you have, and as you look around you, you see opportunity. You know, the next decision I mean, the next decision, the one whether you're going to double down and repent of your rebellious desire of that which is not a part of Christ's kingdom and learn in Christ to shape your affections and find in your spouse the object of your love or the decision to allow the flame of lust to be fanned into that which is not a part of Christ's kingdom. That decision is all about your foundation. Everyone builds on a foundation. If you build on Christ, you allow his teaching to guide your sexuality and your commitments both in marriage and beyond. Now, to be truthful, the boy in the rock pile, strangely enough, is also building a house, a house built with blood and pain and disillusionment and the crushing weight of the cruelty of others. 
but he too builds these very experiences on a foundation of his understanding. He does have a kind of a dream. It's a hellish one to be sure that of building his house on futility, in which nothing better than what he's experiencing can ever occur. See, he doesn't know of a city whose maker and builder is God, a city governed by a king who wipes the tears from each eye and who bids his servants to enter into joy. If there were only someone to tell him to plant a dream in his soul that would fully be realized, See, there is a command in Jesus that his followers cannot be indifferent to this boy, but they are called to preach the good news to the poor as well as to loosen his bonds. But hear me, for those of us who would turn from that child and do nothing, or to those who would actually participate to enslave such a child, that too is to build a house on a foundation, a foundation of the self-centered life. A complete structure rises on just such a foundation. See, everyone builds a house, and everyone wants the best house they can build, but it is the foundation upon which we build that is of ultimate value. Listen again to the beginning of verse 24. Everyone, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, that's the foundation to build upon. Or to verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. That's the other foundation that Jesus is speaking about. Of course, the final outcome of a life is not determined by whether we heard, but whether after we have heard, whether we bend the knee to him and submit our pride and our self-centered dreams to him and to his gospel. Indeed, this is the call to conversion. Come to me, says Jesus. Build your life on that foundation. Follow Christ. Trust Christ. Surrender to Christ. Accept Christ and begin to build a life on him. If you've never done that, now is the time. In this last message of the Sermon on the Mount, we begin to recognize the eternal significance of Jesus' words as he invites all people to be part of his kingdom. Every single person is building their lives on a foundation, and this foundation will determine where one's eternity is spent. There is perhaps no greater message from Jesus than this. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld helps us understand the meaning of building a life upon a rock and what we must do in response. Back to the Bible, Canada has just released a new book written by Dr. John Newfeld entitled, Making the Most of Your Salvation. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The moment Christ died for our sins, we've been pronounced not guilty in God's law court. When you understand the depth of your salvation and the powerful benefits available to you within it, Not only will you be transformed, but your joy and confidence will be apparent to all. And if we could use anything these days, it's the joy of our salvation. While making the most of your salvation will teach you how to access the blessings that God has already put in place through the glory of your salvation. Order your copy online today as our free gift during the month of February. Visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. In the next element of Jesus' story, he turns from the foundation of the house 
to the location in which the house is built. It turns out that the house of the wise and the foolish man is built in the same place. By reading the story, it becomes plain that these houses are built on a floodplain. And the houses are built in the dry season or during that time in which all things seem to be ideal for building a house with the prospect of a continuous, ongoing future that will always be the same as it is today. From that perspective, the way things currently are are the way they will always be. And it would seem that the quality of the house and not the nature of the foundation is the most pressing issue. See, what I mean by that is that in today's world, wealth and fame and pleasure and fulfillment of your dreams, all these things seem more important than faith in Christ. Indeed, in the dry floodplain, the foundation seems to be no more than that of personal preference. But of course, we know from hearing this account that a storm is coming, and the houses will stand or fall depending on the foundation. You know, commentators are divided about what the flood represents. Some claim it's about the storms of life. And from that perspective, when tragedy strikes, a Christian is better equipped to handle difficult times because their life is built upon the foundation of Jesus. Now, it is true that if you find that you have cancer or that you've failed a crucial exam or your finances suffer severe loss, that if you know Romans 8.28, that God causes all these things to work together for our long-term eternal good, if you know those things, then you'll be able to handle tragedy well. See, I'm convinced that those who have faith are truly the toughest people on earth, for they can take devastating loss and still rise again. For they know that their God takes them through such things for his glory and their long-term eternal good. You're convinced that God has an eternal plan for you. Now, as hopeful as such a message is, this, however, is not what Jesus was speaking about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus spoke about a storm, rains and a flood that beat upon a house, the context of his sermon tells us what he's talking about. From the context, we learn that Jesus is speaking about Judgment Day. And so the storm represents the day when every human being is judged before God. It is the storm of God's fury when he, the creator of all things, demands his creation give an account of their lives. The life built upon a rock is obedience to Jesus that comes from faith. It means that we have enough faith in Jesus so that we accept his teachings. It means from the sermon that I trust him enough to direct my sexual morality, forgive my enemies, a commitment to truth-telling, a generosity in giving, a dedication to prayer. And in the end, it means to surrender to him. Live in this way. Let the Savior guide you. And then when the storms of the great end times judgment comes, you will stand. There is a part of the image that Jesus paints that really intrigues me. Both houses not only look relatively secure, but both are built in the same place, on what seems to be a kind of a floodplain, a place where it is dry time, and life seems to carry on as it always has. What I see from this is a parable of our lives. Most of us make decisions in life on the basis of what we presently see. We decide on what's good or bad by what our parents have taught us or what our culture teaches us or what we personally would choose. It's never occurred to many that there is a divine judgment coming, that the values of our culture are not what matters, 
But the standards of the righteousness from the eternal God is what awaits all of us. And that judgment is so severe, it sweeps lives and entire cultures away in the force of its fury. Think of the world before the flood of Noah, or think of Sodom and Gomorrah, or the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. All of life is built on this floodplain. To be human is to be a son or a daughter of Adam in which the sun is shining, but the day of the storm looms overhead. We're all living in the shadow of the judgment. So what is wisdom? If you want to live well, live in such a way that your greatest consideration is not the present, but the permanent. Do not make a better life for yourself here, but bank everything that you have on eternity. Trust Jesus enough that what he says about eternity is really true. Of course, as the New Testament develops, we see clearly that in order to enter into Christ's kingdom, our sins must be judged. A righteous God will not overlook any sin, and the wages of all sin is death. But here we read of Christ's death on our behalf, and that is the good news. You know, in the days of the pioneers who lived in the Canadian prairies or in the great American plains, they often lived in places in which the grasslands were as high or higher than a human being. During the hot summer, the grass would become dry, and then one would have these prairie fires. Often driven by very high winds, such fires would move very quickly and would often be fatal, simply overrunning people and animals and burning them to death. So what would people do to protect themselves? Well, when people saw that the prairie fire was coming, they they knew that they couldn't outrun it. Indeed, no horse could outrun it. So they took a match and they made their own fire. And they would burn a great large circular swath, a large area around them. And then they took their stand in the burnt out area. You know, as the roar of the fire approached, they stood their ground. Because the fire had already passed in that place where they stood, it would not burn there again. That's another picture of wisdom. 2,000 years ago, the fire of God, or the great final end-time judgment of God, fell upon the cross of Jesus. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, and God's great wrath was satisfied in the cross. Now, take your stand in that place where wrath has already once burned. Stand in the place of the cross. Trust in Christ. Take his yoke upon you. Learn from him. Take up his cross. And when wrath falls in the final day, you will stand in the place that has once burned with wrath but will do so no more. Build your house on the rock. Build your life and your dreams and your hopes for the future on the cross. And on the life that the cross entails, enter into the kingdom of heaven and you will be safe. You know, consider the alternative. The foolish man says Jesus built his house on the sand. He heard the words of Jesus, but did not act on them. Jesus came to him and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But as the foolish man looked about, he saw a dry floodplain and saw no value in the teaching of Jesus at all. He made no preparation for the day that he either did not believe would come or he gave no attention. And for him or her, the project of a lifetime, the dreams, the accomplishments, the failures, and the things that were enjoyed and appreciated will be swept away. See, I notice that Jesus makes no mention of those who have never heard. That's not because those who have never heard get a pass, for they don't. The wages of sin are death, whether we've heard of Christ or not. 
But this point in the sermon is not directed at the fate of those who have never heard. The issue doesn't even come up in the sermon. His point is that you ought not to hear the message and turn away. You ought to consider that if you do, in eternal ages from now, you will weep and mourn that such an offer as this has been made to you and the utter folly of not paying heed. See, the truth is, this is the day of salvation. One ought to pay heed to the king, for he really is the king, and his kingdom really is at hand. In amazing kindness, he is making an opportunity to repent and to turn to him. Do not build your life on any foundation but him, for in the end, all other foundations will collapse. As the hymn writer has said, in the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time. All other lives fall into ruin. All other lives collapse beneath the weight of divine judgment. But that one exception is him. How about you? Would you waste such a precious invitation to come to him and live? Of course, in the end of Jesus' sermon, rather than making an invitation, does what many of us would assume should not be done. Instead of appealing to our desires, he warns of impending disaster. In a very real way, Jesus does both. Many times we hear him saying, great will be your reward in heaven. And as he says in Matthew 25, verse 34, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. But now he says, flee the coming day of wrath to the only place where safety is to be found. And then the sermon is over and all that is left is the response of the people. And I end simply by reading verses 28 to 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd was astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Lord Jesus, take my life. I give it to you. It's yours. Amen. Astonishment. I think that's a fitting word to describe people's reaction to Jesus' sermon, not only for what he said, but how he said it. In this final message of the greatest sermon ever preached, we've discovered the full meaning of Christ's words about building our life upon the rock of faith, a faith that is genuine and real and impacts every part of our identity. I hope that this entire series has blessed and challenged you. We pray these teachings of Jesus would both shape and impact our thinking and behavior as we live out our calling as citizens of his kingdom. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Your prayers and financial contributions are critical to our ministry. Back to the Bible Canada is funded solely by donations from people like you, our listeners. A critical group that sustains our Bible teaching program is our monthly partners. These friends of the ministry provide a stable foundation of support. So we thank them and present you the opportunity to join them today. Our monthly partner program called the 1119 Fellowship helps ensure that trustworthy teaching is available throughout Canada in creative ways so that the gospel is easily found and heard by anyone seeking it. By belonging to the 1119 Fellowship, you become part of a nationwide community committed to sharing trustworthy Bible teaching, ensuring that truth, wisdom, joy, and hope can be found for anyone searching for God. To learn more about the program and the unique benefits of becoming a member, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash 
Fellowship.